Hey, 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 everybody, and welcome to a special COVID episode of the Sliding Doors podcast. It's a special episode because we have a special guest, Dr. Pratap Darya. Now, Pratap's worn many hats over the last few decades, some of which include being former head of the Department of Psychiatry at the Christian Medical College, CMC, in Velour, former deputy medical superintendent, additional vice principal of research, former associate director, founding member and former director of Cochrane South Asia, and he's currently the adjunct professor at the Clinical Epidemiology Unit and B.V. Moses Center for Evidence-Informed Healthcare at CMC Valor. What all this means is that he's the perfect person to discuss this COVID pandemic with because his take is based on a lifetime of solving real world problems using rigorous and reliable academic research. But more than all of this, we're excited to have Pratap on the show because he's also my father. And I know that he's been playing around with a fascinating idea that this COVID pandemic that we're experiencing has striking parallels to another pandemic we faced back in the 80s that being the AIDS pandemic. And so Sushil and I thought this would be a perfect jumping off point for a COVID discussion. And so welcome to the show, Appa. I hope I got the intro right. Hi, hi. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me here. And uh, I must uh, just inform your viewers that I'm just Pratap. I, as I have done many things in my life and I continue to do many things. Right now I am uh, doing hydroponics and aquaponics and growing vegetables and sustaining myself and living a quiet life. But I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. We've heard about your koi pool from Rohan in our previous podcast episode. So Six uh, feet okay. by five feet by five feet. Is that it, Appa? Well, it's 10 feet by uh, six feet by five feet. It holds 7,500 liters of water. And I've got about 12 koi. Beautiful stuff. And once a week, if you visit our place, you'll mm -hmm. see my father uh, drain half the pond and then with a pond vacuum cleaner, start vacuuming it. And sometimes he jumps right in to do some maintenance work. Yep, I enjoy, enjoy that time. It's great. So Good. we thought we could start off with a memory I have from when I was a kid of you, I must have been maybe six years old or seven years old, of you going to um, Manipur and uh, for, for, for work. I, I had no idea what that meant at that time, but you'd come back and tell me about this thing called AIDS and about how all these drug addicts would be injecting themselves using the same syringe. So they'd sit in a circle and pass the same syringe around. That's my childhood recollection, uh, recollection of it. What was happening? on these trips? Right. Um, I got involved in HIV AIDS pandemic in the late 80s when, uh, because CMC was actually quite important in the discovery of the HIV virus in India. So what happened at that time was uh, Dr. T. Jacob John, who's a virologist and he's well known for being fairly important in stopping polio in India the entire polio thing. Uh, Jacob John got the Rotary together and the stop uh, polio thing was quite, uh, he was quite central in that. 
so around the late 80s, one of his students, a guy called Eric Stimoyes, was bouncing ideas off uh, Jacob John. And he asked Jacob John, why is it that, uh, do you think that we have HIV in India? And at that time, Jacob John said, no, 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 India is not like the rest of the world. You're a, you know, a kind of a slightly different morality or words to that effect. But because they were a science group, uh, T. Jacob John said, look, let's, it's a hypothesis. The hypothesis is there HIV in India. So what they did was they got a study going where they wanted to test the blood of uh, people who had multiple blood transfusions. And uh, these transfusions, well, who would you get them in? In people who had hemophilia or something where they get multiple transfusions. So each person would have had five to six transfusions in their life. So that means your sample is then multiplied by six times. So they did that study and they reported the first paper from India said there is no HIV. But Eric, being the smart guy he was, went back to Dr. John and said, listen, when HIV comes into a country, blood trans uh, people who get blood uh, transfusions are not the first lot of people who are going to get affected. It's going to come in through the sex work. Right. So that's when Dr. T. Jacob John and a colleague in uh, who founded YRG Care, microbiologist in Chennai, they went to a remand home and they tested the blood of women in the remand home. Of course, ethics was quite different at that time. I don't think informed consent was ever taken, but they discovered that these girls were infected. And then CMC swung into action because what happened then was that our previous director, Dr. V.I. Martin, uh, he was treating people for, who had gastroenterological problems. And one of his patients, whom he was absolutely confident, would not have got the infection from anywhere apart from blood transfusion in CMC. He was so upset. He went to the director at that time, Dr. Pulimo, and told him, listen, this is not on. CMC cannot be using infected blood. We have to screen them. So because Dr. D. Jacob John by that time had got an ICMR grant and we were a reference laboratory for AIDS in HIV, overnight, just one patient suspected to have been infected in CMC, we started screening blood for everybody way before anyone in the country was doing this. And I think one of the earliest cases that T. Jacob John had found was positive. He had come to donate blood. He was a businessman and he was HIV positive. That's when the virologists realized that psychiatrists and psychologists and counseling is essential when you pass a death sentence on someone. Because at that time, there was no treatment for AIDS. So that's how we got involved. My colleagues first got involved, and later on, I was asked to help them. And we spent many years going all over the country, telling people there is a condition called HIV and AIDS, and we are all at risk. And these are the modes of transmission, and this is how you don't get it. So one of our trips took us to, as Rohan said, Manipur in the Northeast. Now the pattern of HIV spread in India, majority was heterosexual transmission, but in the Northeast it was largely uh, drug, intravenous drug use. Because uh, the Northeast and Manipur shares a very long border with Myanmar or Burma. And inside the jungles of Myanmar was a despot, who was a kingpin. And he was refining heroin there. And his heroin was locally called the most powerful heroin in the world. They called it number four. That means it's been you know, refined that many times. And 
because the border was so long and porous when the British cut India into various parts, they didn't realize that there are relatives on both sides of the border and they used to keep walking across. And the border security force couldn't control them. So India became a conduit for heroin to be sent all over the world when Thailand closed their border. All the trade started coming this side. And it was very cheap to buy heroin there in, in Manipur in those days compared to what it is in the streets of New York or in any other capital of the world. What then happened was there were lots of leakages in heroin and the kids there started using it. But the government reacted to this by criminalizing the possession of heroin or even needles and syringes. You could not buy a needle or a syringe and go to jail. And there were a lot of people with drug use who were in jails. So what would people do? They would take shampoo sachets, empty the shampoo, cut the end, one needle they'd have, they'd use that as a syringe and a needle and share it. And that's how the epidemic got worse because needle sharing was one of the ways in which it was being transferred. And I saw ridiculous things going on. I can't even imagine. I saw a young kid who was being asked by his elder brothers, you know, all of them sit down on a tree, go and fetch chai. And his reward was he'd get heroin. So they got them addicted. I mean, you can't find clean water. What would these kids do? They would go to a dirty river or gutter or a drain and use that water to flush the sewage. I once asked these kids, don't you know this is filthy water? You can get infected with so many other things. And the kid told me, don't worry, sir. This is number four heroin. It's the strongest drug in the world. It will kill anything. So that was the misconceptions about drug failed that. But it was fascinating because I can see now that there are so many parallels between what the world went through then and what COVID is going through now. So, Rohan, that's what I was doing uh, when I Right, right. So, um, what are some of these parallels that, that you're seeing? Well, it's interesting because I was watching the video. There are so many of these videos going around, which kind of tell you that. Uh, you know, doubting the origins of coronavirus. You know, we all know that in late or mid-December of 2019, the world got to hear about this because news items that uh, there was a crackdown in a place called Wuhan, in Hubei province in China, because one doctor who had been caught by the, you know, media police sharing a confidential message to his friend saying, I want to alert you that there is a new virus around. It's like coronavirus, which causes SARS. It causes respiratory problems and people are very sick. I just want to warn you, there's something like this. But that mail was intercepted and he was chastised for rumor mongering and creating a panic. And that's when the world first knew there is a potential problem here. But then the government clamped down and they were looking at what was going on and they very rapidly realized there is a condition where there are people falling ill with respiratory problems and getting a form of pneumonia, which causes them a lot of respiratory distress. And so they noticed that about 41 of those initial cases, they could link to direct contact with, or they were working in the Hunan uh, fish food market, seafood market, which is a place where you get meats and fish and stuff like any other market in the world. But some parts of it have live wild animals from various parts of the world. And they felt that this is probably originated from there. 
And around that time, uh, there were scientists who were able to isolate from the blood of these people a virus, which is very similar to what caused SARS and also very similar to uh, what you could find in bat droppings in a cave close by, not very far away. So they link it all together and then by the end of uh, December, they realized that this is spreading all over the place. So they alerted the WHO that there is a new a zoonotic illness. Zoonosis means from vertebrates to human transmission, crossing a species, very similar like SARS. And by the 7th of January or so, they told them this is a coronavirus we have sequenced. And shortly after, they even came up with a test, a reverse uh, polymerase, RT-PCR, what we use to diagnose the presence of the virus in the body. So that's what we know. But people are now asking questions, could it have originated only there? Could it be a biological weapon? All kinds of theories. And I'm drawn to parallels to what happened in HIV. Now, if you remember HIV at all, you'd realize that the world said it started in 1981. But many, many years later, people did more research. Now we know, or we believe, that HIV originated the virus that causes the acquired immune deficiency syndrome can be traced back to 1920 in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in Kinshasa. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they, they, were, they now believe that chimpanzees were infected with two strains of simian immunodeficiency virus. Like HIV is human immunodeficiency. Simian is it attacks monkeys and apes. And two species of monkeys were being preyed on by chimpanzees. Used to eat them. And these two species had different simian immunodeficiency viruses, which kind of combined a kind of a chimera in the chimpanzee, which was then hunted by hunters and then sold for fish, or during the hunting, they got into cuts and scrapes. And, and, and anyway, in, in Kinshasa, it became a locally spread infection. And then they've traced it through uh, the sex trade and through traders and stuff. It came all many, many countries. And they believe there were probably more than 100,000 infections by the time it became an epidemic, or at least detected as an epidemic in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. There are cases reported. In 1957, there was a case reported in the US, in different parts of the world. But what happened was it became apparent because in San Francisco in the early 70s, in 80s, 81, gay people who were otherwise healthy started falling ill of a kind of a fungal <coughs> pneumonia called pneumocystis carina. You get it, it's a fungal disease. You'd only get it in the immunosuppressed people. And then other gay people who were again previously healthy started getting skin cancers called Kaposi's sarcoma. Putting all this together, they realized there's a particular virus affecting gay people. And in fact, in those days, it was called a gay disease. There was a name for it. That's a gay disease. But then they noticed that uh, people who are also using amyl nitrate in parties as a recreational drug. So initially, it was, they thought maybe it's something to do with the toxicity of the drug. But then they later realized that it's also affecting people who are getting blood transfusions, hemophiliacs. So in the early days, nobody knew what it was. And it took many years for them to actually find out there was a virus. So the parallels are when you have a disease, which is weird, right? And then a uh, funny thing was around the same time, people from Haiti 
who had been working in Congo, they started getting infected. And when they came to the US, they said these migrants, Haitians, they're bringing disease. So think of what's happening today. Nobody really knows when this virus actually came. It certainly was not in December. I'll tell you why. Because when you start noticing people who've got a respiratory infection, and sick enough for them to go into a hospital, right? They were infected at least four weeks before that. And now we know that when you get one person who dies, the first death in, uh, in I think Wuhan was around the, sometime in January, 7th or so, mm -hmm. right? One death means there are probably already 800 cases in the community, right? Now they say there was a shrimp seller in Wuhan who they think had this in November. For that person to be detected, he would have been detected weeks before that. So keep in mind also that this new year, the lunar festival was going on. People were coming in from all over the world. And by the time Wuhan was closed down sometime in January 11th or so, people were already leaving. So it's my belief, and many people believe, that this infection left China way before the world realize there's a problem and started closing down borders. It is already very widespread. So now you have a disease uh, which is, you know, no one knows what treatments can be. HIV, no treatment. It's like a death sentence. People are, you know, the mortality with HIV is far greater over the years that's happened. If you look at it, 43% of people who were ever infected from 1981 to 2018 when we have statistics, I'll give you an idea. I'd kind of jot it down. Okay, between the time 1981 to, uh, then you probably had around nine, uh, 75 million people with HIV, with HIV infection wow. and 32 wow. million died. It's a long period. Right? The death rate is around 43%. Okay, there was a killer disease. So there was global panic. Everybody, you know, today what's happening, uh, you know, people who are considered infective, they can't stay in houses. They are being asked to leave. Same thing are happening there. You know, there was stigma, discrimination, violence against people who have the illness as well as their, their communities, right? A criminalization. If you don't wear a mask, you'll be arrested. If you spit in public, you'll be arrested. Same sort of thing happening. There's nothing different in the reaction of society to what happened in HIV and what happened. So that's the kind of parallels I'm talking in terms of the origins. We don't know exactly what the origins are. Um, we will only know many years from now when the research establishes where it came from. There are a lot of parallels in both zoonoses. They came from animal species into us, humans, and there's now human-to-human -human transmission. It's going on in the community. Uh, and uh, the other parallel I can think of is in terms of, uh, you know, how, when you start testing, how you test in the wrong place. Just like Dr. Jacob John and his colleagues started testing in uh, people who were getting blood transfusion. And they should have been testing people who were doing sex work. Here, when we are doing testing, because we don't have many tests, We'll test, initially started testing only people who had a travel history, right? And people who have contact with those people. But we already know that probably by then the disease is already in the community, right? 
So when you don't test a person who has an illness, he will not be in the statistics. When someone dies who has not been tested, they will not be in the statistics that we have. So those are the kind of uh, parallels we had even then, when people were dying of illnesses and stuff. We didn't know whether it was HIV or not. Until the testing became widespread. Does it make sense uh, to you? Yes, yes. Um, so we have the way we slowly start figuring out there's a problem. We slowly start uh, exploring what the problem is. Then there's an element of panic. Uh, then yep. there's an element of stigmatization. You, in the, you try and assign blame. So you find a community, uh, whether it's the gay community or whether, like Trump says, it's the Chinese disease. Yes. Um, Another key Whether factor. My, migrants, migrants, all of these, yes. these other people are blamed. Yeah. Another key, key factor, which you and I have been talking about, is this thing about denial. Um, and, and to yeah. sort of put that in context, um, I think about three weeks ago, before, well before yeah. the lockdown was announced, um, uh, my dad had called me. I was in Chennai, and my dad had called me and said, Listen, this, this thing seems like it's going somewhere. Um, I suggest you come back because it looks like we're going to start reacting very soon. Perhaps too late, but soon. And I remember being slightly confused because, uh, I mean, this is a cold. It's like a cold. Not many people are dying. I mean, if you're young, you'll survive. But my dad had never reacted like that before. And so I listened and I came back. A lot of my friends were making fun of me saying, hey, you're overreacting. The government's not saying anything. Don't take this seriously. But then I saw everything my dad had predicted slowly happening. And there is this sense of, there was the sense of no, this is an overreaction. So I'm curious, how did you deal with um, watching the people around you not reacting in the way you were reacting? Well, it's been very, very worrying for me because um, I can tell you, you know, in uh, around the 20th of, I've been reading about how this spreads and I on a particular group of medical doctors who are very concerned about the ethics of healthcare in the country, I've been alerting them to this. And I actually did some basic calculations. And I said, see, in China, they say that, uh, uh, you know, 80% of people are going to be no, nothing's going to happen to them. Among the remaining 20%, 16% would have probably, uh, or 14% would have uh, some sort of symptom, serious symptoms, needing care, and 6% would die. Or at least they go in a hospital and they require ventilation and stuff. Right, so I started doing the math for India, and it scared me. Our population is, you know, 130, you know, 1.3 billion. Is that right? Yeah. One. Uh, no, yeah. is it at more two points? I think it's two point three. No, no, it's one point three. It's one. What? One. It's huh? one point okay. three. One point okay. three. China's got around one point four plus. Okay. okay. I do the math. If seventy percent of uh, one point three billion were to be infected with this virus, that's around ninety-eight million. Two percent of ninety-eight million is what? hundred and thirty lakhs to die. Right? And 20% of them, or 6% require ventilators. We just don't have a ventilator. So I started asking them, shouldn't we be worried? But everybody in the group told me, many of them told me, I'm creating panic. This is not going to happen. It's rubbish. It was really terrifying. 
Then I did the math again. Uh, I found that China said that they stopped this infection, which is 90 or 80 odd thousand people affected, right? And some 3,000 deaths. So I talked to Dr. Jacob John and said, listen, how is it possible that with less than 1% of their population infected, they say they've stopped. That's when we wrote a, paper, a piece for the Hindu, saying this is a huge puzzle. And we don't believe that the data is correct because it doesn't make any epidemiological sense. This is a respiratory virus which is very contagious, right? And uh, it's going to affect large members of the population. And between 60 or maybe around 60% would have to be infected for an infected person to not be able to transmit to somebody else because he's all the person who's infecting. If 70% of the population are immune, they've either had the illness and recovered from a serious disease or they've had very few symptoms. Then when they come into contact with somebody who's trying to infect them, they won't get infected. We don't know exactly how, what the balance should be. It should be somewhere between 55 to 70% of the population should have this infection have recovered from. Right. So that kind of fear is very difficult to deal with. And I found it very difficult to find the old one. I, I could predict this is going to hit. That's when I told you, Rohan, you come down here because, and yeah, I didn't even yeah. ask you, I told you, don't even take public transport because it's already in the community. We're not testing for it. I said, don't even take a taxi. I'll come and pick you up myself. And I'll give you another example of how the rise is. Okay. India did a complete lockdown from the 24th. On the 23rd evening, if you looked at the data, we had 468 cases. By the time the lockdown ended on the 24th, on the 14th of April, we had how many cases? 10,000. From 448 to more than 10,000 in the space of three weeks. That's more than a 24 increase in cases. At the same time, before the lockdown started, we had nine deaths. By the time the lockdown had started, we had more than 330 deaths. So this is going to keep going up. Now, this is probably an underestimate. Why? Because we're not testing. When you test more, you'll find more. Right. But it's also right. probably an underestimate in terms of uh, deaths also. But it, a 2 to 3% death rate means as it grows. So let me just explain to you what the transmission is like. Right. This is what is called exponential. That means the, there's something called a basic reproductive rate for a virus. How often it replicates. And that's called the R naught, zero, R zero, right? Now, if you want to get transmission to stop, it has to be R less than one. That means if I have the virus, I need to be able to infect somebody else for transmission to take place. If I can't infect one person, then nothing takes place. So this virus basic reproductive rate is between two and three. So let's just wow. say it's two. Yeah. So if I am infected, I will infect two people. And this depends on how long I can transmit for. And for this virus, is between about two to three weeks, I can infect others. Mm -hmm. Also depends on how many people are around me. So if I'm in a room full of people, this R0 can go up. Right. So it's there's something which right. is a property of the virus. And, it, and this R0 depend, reproductive rate depends on whether I'm meeting people who are susceptible. They have no immunity. So when this is a new virus comes into the community, there's nobody who's immune to it. So 
two to three people will be infected by one person. Okay, you take on day one, you have I infect two people, right? Over the next few weeks, two people will infect four, four will infect eight, eight will infect 16, six will infect 32. And very rapidly, 32. Another way of looking at it is, they've calculated that every 10, 16 days, every 16 days, there'll be a 10 fold increase. Wow. So wow. today, tenfold. So today, today we have 10,000 cases. By the end of this month, tenfold increase of 10,000 is how much? One lakh. 16 days later, we'll have 10 lakhs. That's the way this goes, unless you can cut transmission. Right. Mm. Yeah. This, this sounds like a uh, good place to take a short yes. break because we have a bunch of questions from Sushil, myself, and the internet. So maybe we'll take a five minute break and return. Welcome back, everybody. That was a fun part one. And now we go to a hard hitting part two, where uh, Sushil and I ask uh, my dad questions that we've come up with. And we also open this up to the internet and I've taken some of the more interesting questions. Um, so this should be fun. And if you have any questions, please, uh, we'll tell you how to contact us later and this conversation can continue. So for now, Sushil, why don't you take us away? Sure. So here are a few questions that we put together. Um, let's start off with some questions about um, people saying that this is um, a, a disease in which older people die. So it's as a percentage of deaths, it's much higher for older people. So is it okay for young people to then go out and be, you know, going about their daily lives, doing their work? Um, Will that be okay? Well, uh, it's difficult to answer that, except to just point out a few things. One is, yeah. um, when the data first came from China, it seems to suggest that the majority of people who died, the vast majority were above 60, 65, 70, 80, mm -hmm. right? And it looked like not many young people were dying. But when the disease, when this infection spread across the world, if you take U.S. data and data from other parts of the world, in the U.S. they've shown that about 40, almost 40% 40 of people who are being put into hospital are between the ages of 20 and 50, or right. 60. And I just heard many interviews of survivors, that is, they've come, been out of ICU. Mm -hmm. And one of them was the director of the movie, The English Patient. Remember that movie? Yeah. The English Patient. Yeah. Well, he's an Englishman and he was admitted and mm -hmm. he said, I was surprised to see the number of people 50 plus who are on ventilators. Right. And you're increasingly getting stories coming out from across the world that people in the front line, doctors, many of them are young. Mm -hmm. There are people in the Navy, Indian Navy, 12 people are infected and some of them fall ill. So increasingly we are finding that the mortality statistics depend on the country area. So for example, you take India, right? What is the comorbidity that is associated with death? Older age is one, pre-existing conditions. What are these conditions? Hypertension, diabetes, obesity. You know, India is now one of the capitals in the world of diabetes. And 
we are getting increasingly obese people around us, young people, well-to-do people. A lot of them are old. And we've got tuberculosis. We've got poverty, which causes malnutrition. So we can't be sure that this is only going to affect older people in India. Right. Okay. We only had 300 deaths. Right. You just wait and see. Let me put it another way. You can look at it from personal risk and say a population risk is not a personal risk. Yes. For you, it is 100% or 0%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you have no way of knowing whether you're going to be part of that 20 or 30% which falls in the population. True. So the only, True. only way that in HIV, a raw parallel, when HIV, many people said, I am not susceptible because I am not going to visit commercial sex workers, I'm not taking blood transfusions, I'm not popping drugs, right? But if you look at the statistics of HIV, so many of the women who got in, infected in this country had absolutely no risk factors, except that they had sexual relationships with their, with their partners, their single partners, husbands. But they didn't realize that the husbands are at risk. Hmm. So same thing occurs here, you know, personal risk is not the same as saying there's a population risk. Everybody, anybody, children have died, infants have died. So if you want to take the risk, that's your choice. But I do admit that young people will have to start working. They have to acknowledge that they are at risk. The risk is lower than older people, but they are also at risk. And there are ways you can do that. You can actually, you know, protect yourself. Um, so, so does this mean that uh, this is something that we just have to live with? Yeah, so it's like this. We now believe that this virus is going to spread. In fact, it's already spread across into the community. We're just not testing in the right people. Mm -hmm. There are pre there are asymptomatic people who can infect others. There are pre-symptomatic people who can infect others. And right. there are mildly symptomatic people who will never go to a doctor who are still infecting others. Right? So this has already gone beyond what you can do with what they call mitigation. Mitigation is things like social distancing and lockdowns and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's gone to a stage where now you'll find that it is not just question. It's already gone into the community stage. So looking to build up herd immunity. The mm -hmm. world is actually unwittingly using a combination of the two measures. They think they're doing mitigation, but it's gone beyond that. Moreover, people believe that this is going to peter out maybe towards the end of the year, but it will come back and it's going to be there for many years especially if we don't build enough long-term immunity. We don't know how long the immunity you get after you get infected. Right. Because now they're finding people who have supposedly recovered, getting, coming back again with signs of the illness. So we just don't know. We just have to expect that it's going to be with us for quite a long time. And I think the corollary to that is the issue of can youngsters start working. One of the uh, thoughts was we could just uh, let the older people be protected and let society yes. carry on as usual so that yes. you can build up herd immunity. As I said, there are two problems here. One is we already have widespread transmission, even though we are trying to mitigate and slow down the big right, catastrophic rise. We are, not, we are not able to control this virus. Therefore, yeah. I don't think you'll be able to control uh, protecting young people, older people. You say, you take a look at this. Half the leaders of industry and political leaders and everybody are working for Boris Johnson. Could you protect it? If you couldn't protect a person like Boris Johnson, how are you going to protect old people? 
Well, I think and he's a special case. He was going and shaking hands with everybody. It was not just shaking hands. See, what was happening, he probably didn't get infected then. He okay. probably got infected in a meeting where the head of Neil Ferguson, the guy who was doing all the modeling from Imperial College, gave a press conference. And mm -hmm. he said he's got symptoms of COVID. Oh. All of London is infected. They are not testing everybody around there. He right. probably got infected around that time. Because that is okay. around two weeks before this happened. So if you want to keep old people, keep in mind that virtually every leader of industry is above 50 years old. Virtually every political leader around the world. The WHO is full of old people. So you will have to have a whole new set of administrators. Our government, look at our government. Look at most governments yeah. in the world. It is yeah. just not practical. Yeah. It is not practical. That's the reason why the UK, very late, change their tactics. Mm -hmm. They lost a lot of time by considering this option. It is just not practical. And uh, a, a difference uh, with the Indian scenario is it's not that simple to separate the old people and the young people. When you have generations living together, the, old the, the young person can go out but comes back to an elderly parent or a, a grandparent. Any any young person, even in schools, kids can get infected. They may not show any symptoms, they may not be sick, but they'll bring it back to older people, right? And if you say that you, uh, there are lots of videos going on, how do you keep older people away from young people? It may work in a small, you know, isolated part of the world, but it will not work in the majority of the world. You take all right. of Southeast Asia. All of Southeast Asia lives together as communities. You know, and you'll probably find the same thing in Latin America and in Africa. It's just not practical. So what we've got to accept is we have embarked on the process of trying to prevent a catastrophic rise in infections, which can overwhelm our health systems and cause a lot of deaths. We are failing, but that's the best we can do. So hmm. what we have to realize is we have lots of lessons we can learn from countries who have done a better job. Right. Now, it's too late to say that we should have acted earlier. We haven't acted. But what are these countries just slowly opening up their economies in Southeast Asia and doing? They are all making sure that we don't infect each other. Now, think about it. How, how can I, if I'm infected, infect anybody else? I can infect through my nose or my mouth. I can cough, I can sneeze, I can breathe. There is very clear evidence now that if two people are talking to each other, even at uh, three, four, five feet distance, when they cough, this micro droplets stay in the air for a long time, right? And you cannot know. So what is happening, the best evidence that there is comes from countries where everybody uses social distancing as far as possible, but everybody is wearing a face mask, not necessarily a surgical mask or an N95. If I wear a face mask, I reduce the amount of infection coming out of if you're also wearing a face mask, you are reducing that infection. That is the best thing that we can do. As far as possible, social distance, as far as, and, and irrespective. See, the message for HIV AIDS was wear a condom 100% of the time by 100% of the people when you're having sex with somebody you cannot 100% be sure is infected. Right? So that same message, everybody wears a mask in public 100% of the time. And try your best at social distance. If you cannot social distance, at least wear a mask. Everybody wears a mask. Right. And so, and all that disinfection stuff. The other thing is, 
if you are in a room with somebody else if the ac is on make sure you open your windows at least once an hour to allow air to come through and disperse all the micro droplets there are simple solutions that we have to do as a nation yeah i just like to draw our listeners or our viewers attention to um a paper my father had linked me to uh, looking at how uh, if there's any evidence to show that wearing a mask will help very interesting article um, we can link to that in the show notes um, and you can understand more about what my father is talking about sushu yeah sorry i couldn't hear part of that last um right um, so what i was like uh, with rohan said i said uh you okay so what i said was that the best way in which we can ensure that infection does not spread widespread is in our hands if yes. we use the analogy of how did they manage uh, to prevent hiv infection right where so for example let me just explain to you that countries like uganda and thailand they stopped they reduced infection transmission the incidence of hiv not the prevalence hiv never goes away so the prevalence means it's how many people have it that will be continuing to increase but new cases of hiv infection could be prevented and in uganda and in thailand one of the clear messages was everybody is potentially infected everybody is potentially as risk either you have to be 100% faithful to one part now you have to make sure you are 100% wearing a condom if you are having you know a relationship with anybody else the corollary here is we do not know who is infected out they are not doing the test right they could be asymptomatic pre symptomatic mildly symptomatic right and if everybody wears a mask the virus cannot leave you or come into the other person that is the sure fire strategy social distancing hand hygiene disinfection wear a mask as far as possible don't sit in air conditioned rooms where this droplets can linger for hours then what will happen all the surfaces that are contaminated will dry out in some time right and there will be no viral transmission it comes from you so what you have to realize is that you keep the virus you don't know whether you have the virus you may have been asymptomatic you don't know whether the other person has the virus so if you go to any of the countries with experience sars hong kong china all of them the government didn't ask hong kong people to wear masks in fact the government before this whole thing had said if you wear a mask will be arrested they were having a turmoil at that time right without a doubt everybody started wearing masks south korea all those countries are used to sars and they know the value of wearing a mask in public and there are many barriers you know many people do not like the idea of wearing a mask they want to show their faces but what you got to realize is that we actually communicate through our eyes if you look at a uh, a woman wearing parda right you communicate looking at her eyes and some people have very expressive eyes so we got to realize these are naturally ingrained in us see you look at half of north india during the months when there's pollution everybody in delhi is wearing a mask why because they know the personal risk they can't breathe so this is an unknown risk you have to use the same strategies don't tell me you don't have mask all those people wear mask even a cloth cover we are not asking you to wear surgical mask just any bit of cloth covering and i personally feel this is one of the ways we can kick start the economy repurpose 
so many industries, right? Italy had, it's fascinating, personal protective equipment, including masks were being made by Gucci. All the fashion houses were making masks. That's one of the ways our industries can cooperate. There are many cottage industries, you know, self-help groups, community volunteers, currently making masks for safe, for, for use. Our local uh, lady who runs a boutique here has stopped doing anything but make masks. He, her tailor is sitting at home and making masks. This is the way we have to all contribute to this global endeavor. Everybody from now on needs to realize this is one pandemic. The next one will come. There's still climate change coming. We have to change our mindset and realize the way the world has been going, concentrating everything into small spaces and you know, thinking that we have to go fly across the world for a meeting, for where you speak for, for 10 minutes, it has to stop the way we conduct our businesses. Why should you go to work? I mean, most of you can work from home and spend time with your families. So I'm, all I'm of these finding that out. Yep, you're finding that out, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. Um, yeah, so I think- part of the situation. Yeah, I think it's that realization that A, this is a big deal, and that now that it's yeah. a big deal, this is what we can do. And even if it's inconvenient right now, we can get used to it and it's worth, it has a payoff, right? Definitely. So what, and I think everybody across the world is seeing this, that we have to change. Behavior has to change. Definitely. Yeah. So what I think is that we have to realize that a lockdown is an extreme example of mitigation. And generally, it says we don't know what to do. So we are locking everybody down to try and prevent the spread. Yes, but lockdowns need to be combined with many other things. One is you have to rapidly increase testing unless you can identify who's infected and isolate a few people, quarantine a few people. You're locking the whole country down. That just doesn't make sense. And the next thing you have to keep in mind is that we have to kickstart the economy. We just, every day you see such a lot of tragedy and people have no access to nothing. No work, no food, no nothing. And you cannot just use lattes and lock people up. You got to plan, how can we open up? So I've written an article with Dr. P. Jacob John, which you hope you'll see in the papers in a few days from now. What we realize is we actually have a social vaccine. Now, our health minister, Ashwadu, he said a few days ago, 9th of May, 9th, 19th of April or something, he said in an interview, uh, I think it was on the 9th of April, he said, Lockdowns and social distancing are the only effective social vaccines we have for COVID. And the problem is a social vaccine is far more than that. It's a term that's been in use since 2006 and it was used to describe how Uganda and Thailand are all brought down there without any drugs, right? So what they did was manage to bring down infection so that people and new people are not getting infected till in 1995, this highly active antiretroviral treatment was rolled out, brought us time. And what did that do? It, create, it prevented deaths by bringing down the viral load. And that brought down infection further. So what we have to do is buy time to, till they actually come up with drugs or a vaccine. Now, actually, I don't believe a vaccine is going to be the answer to our problem because this thing mutates quite a lot. You look at influenza vaccines. They're not very effective. And every year a new vaccine has to come and your immunity is only for about a year or so. So maybe there'll be a vaccine, but I don't, I'm not putting my bets on the vaccine. But what I'm really hoping is we will find medical treatment, drug treatments 
There's a drug called Remdesivir, which was used in Ebola. That shows promise it's being trialed. This hydroxychloroquine, we don't know what it's actually. So stuff like that, which will bring down your viral loads and prevent death. There are new treatments, how to prevent the cytokine storm. That is a hyperinflammation that can happen in some people when they're trying to fight the infection. So we have to prevent new infections still there. We cannot do it by locking everybody down. It would be ideal if you had a thousand people in the world and you locked all thousand people down, this infection would go. But there are billions of people in the world and you just cannot lock them down. Right. So what we have to realize is that we have to use the social vaccine. What is a social vaccine? It's a metaphor for what governments can do to mobilize society. And you mobilize society, they realize there is a problem. There are unhealthy behaviors and we can change. And through advocacy, right, you can actually get back to the government and say, listen, we authorize you to do certain things. And we authorize you to actually start looking at the social determinants of health and disease and reverse that. So that you realize right now our health systems are terrible. We have no clear idea what our employment figures until this happened. We used to doubt that you know our employment is going up. But who are these people we are employing? People who have no social net. Migrant workers, people who are living in the gig economy. Right? You can't boast of an economy which collapses like this. So we have to reverse all of those. And that's what a social vaccine can. It can inoculate society to be resilient to future epidemics. And this combined bit of action is the only thing we can do. The message you see in HIV, what used to happen, they had something called IEC, Information, Education, Communication. That means giving out messages. But there are a lot of barriers to people actually being able to do this, including understanding what is your personal use. They've changed all this and they call it social behavioral change communication. Identifying where are the barriers, what are the facilitators, mobilizing people to work together. It has to be participatory. It has to involve every segment of society so that then we as a nation say, us, we are not fighting our government because they're imposing lockdowns on us. We're all working together at our own community levels mm. so that you feel compelled to make sure in your street everybody's wearing a mask. Not by fighting with them, but by having discussions, finding out what that you don't know that makes me so scared, but you so blase about. That's the way we can actually get this thing under control. Make sense? Right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Certainly. Um, so, just to summarize, so you're saying that in addition to um, having the lockdown and social distancing, we have to work with the communities around us to make sure that people understand and comply with this? Yeah, one, that is the health message that everybody has to comply. But then we have to get the government to realize, boss, you cannot lock down unless you help us with all the financial sure. and economic passages. See, resilience will build up in a community when the community has no doubt that we have to do it together. Half my friends are fighting, saying this is ridiculous. This is the stupidest thing we can do. Lockdowns are useless. And the other half are saying, what about infection? So we've got to balance how you mitigate suffering at the mm -hmm. same time as controlling infection. Mm -hmm. It can't be one or the other. It cannot be you'll have a lot of body bags or you'll have a lot of starvation. You have to be right. dealing with both. Right. So I'll be seeing a lot of that, um, that discussion happening in the US, especially right now. Right. It's happening everywhere. But unfortunately, in certain countries, the 
predominant voices are the ones that are being heard. But every community all across the world is now realizing that what you have to remind them is we actually have the skills. Every country has dealt with HIV the same way. Even after the infection, the antiretroviral treatments came, the same counselors, NGOs were all working to help people adjust to the new challenge of living with HIV. You're trying to prevent HIV. And how do you live with HIV? So the infrastructure is already there. We just have to draw on those lessons. You know, we had right. a previous health secretary who was head of NACO, National AIDS Commission, Sujata Rao. You know, all of these people are around. They know how to do it. So the government has to actually say, our greatest ally in beating COVID-19 is our people. We have to work together to ensure that you invest in testing and you know all the communication, making sure confidentiality is preserved. See, you are you have an illness today. Everybody knows why they put a big chapa on your on your door that you're infected. Same thing happened in HIV in our own hospital. We uh -huh. have people say that you know HIV infected and admitted in the ward, they'll hang a red bag by the bedside of that person. Why? To collect all the infected material and put it there. And I was medical deputy medical superintendent. I, we had a meeting. And we say, listen, why do you need a red bag? Why do you have to identify that person? Then they say, listen, the person who comes to take blood, the technician who comes to draw blood from him, needs to know who's infected and who's not. I said, no, the person who comes to take blood should assume that everybody is taking blood from could be infected. Only after you do the blood test will you know that he's infected or not. So he should be protecting himself from everybody. So in, during the HIV epidemic, there was a term coined called universal health protection. Everybody has to learn that they are infected. A barber comes to your house. He could be infected. You could be infected. He should be wearing at least a mask and some sort of thing. You should also be wearing the same thing. So that's how we have to think of this. Universal health protection is not wearing a space suit. It's wearing the simplest possible thing that you can and you're following the simplest procedures that you can, instead of saying, the government has to give me all this. Hey, right. I don't expect my government to give me anything, except the few things they can. I can look after myself. So when you empower communities to say, you can take care of yourself, through knowledge, through common sense, and through support from everybody else, if you don't have the materials, I'll give it to you. There are hospitals now that I know of, in places like Orissa, Vishankata, where they've involved the entire community to make face masks. And at the entrance to the hospital, if you come into that hospital, hospitals are, you know, hot seats for getting infected, right? Moment you enter, before you enter the hospital, if you don't have a mask, you're given a mask. They give it to you. So wow. just, 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 imagine, just imagine how many face masks. Each person will re require a minimum of two. When summer comes, you start sweating. The mask gets wet, it's useless. You have to throw it away. So let's just say each person will need four face masks. And 1.3 billion population, you minus all the little infants and kids. It's still a huge number of masks. Where are we going to get it? We have to make it. So what I'm trying to say, all the ingredients of a social vaccine need to start being put in place before you start releasing lockdowns. That's our job during a lockdown. Get prepared to lift. And you have to lift. So when you lift the lockdown, everybody knows how to protect you. If you can't socially distance, you can't. But wear a mask. Right? Yeah. That's a key yeah. point. Because yeah. 
social distancing takes on a different meaning in a country like India with our population and space. Yes. Yes. But if I'm in a small confined space and the only thing I can do to prevent the virus from going into my mouth or my nose is to wear a mask, I should be doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Great. Um, so on the topic of lockdown and a lot of social isolation and all that, I think um, I'm going to uh, divert a little bit to talk about the psychological impact of this um, isolation and lockdown for people who are living alone, people who are uh, living away from their families and uh, the doctors, business people, all of these people are struggling and who will continue to struggle through the economy uh, doing badly or whatever. Um, so you have spoken about uh, Indian people being a little more resilient. Um, how do you think this will pan out? What do you think people can do also to um, be resilient? Yeah, okay. There are two uh, issues I can talk about. It's not social isolation. It's physical distancing. But you mm -hmm. should be trying to say we have to build social networks. Right. I had a friend. He went to do some kind of project and found it was a lockdown. And he doesn't know anyone. They're living in a hostel. And he called me. He sent me a message saying, I, I think I'm depressed. I don't know what to do. That's a long chat with him. And I just basically called him and said, keep in mind that you're on your own. Right? Now, you've got a neighbor. Where is he from? He says, I think he's from Afghanistan. Do you know what his wife's name is? No. So what I encourage you to do is, who's your community? Get to know them. Tell them that you're afraid. How are you dealing? When you become vulnerable, you actually start learning how to become resilient. When you acknowledge that I'm distressed, I'm upset, right? That's when you realize that any pandemic comes with a lot of emotion. Everybody caught up in a pandemic has got emotion. You can acknowledge it. Honestly, I'm bored. I'm scared. I'm terrified. Once you start doing that, you'll figure out ways in which you can deal with this. Right? So connecting with people, your neighbors. I know I've been listening to a news item saying there was a lady living in a street in the UK or some country. And she said, before the lockdown, I didn't know who my neighbors are. And Rohan, you remember when we lived in the UK, we lived in a street with neighbors. I used to mow the lawn every Saturday because if I don't mow the lawn, neighbors will see you are an Asian, you have a dirty lawn. Right? This was but, in the 90s. Uh, yep. Yeah, it's probably there even today. But if you, my neighbor and me used to talk about football, we used to talk about various things. But I didn't know his name, he didn't know my name. It was, you, don't, you don't do that. Now this lady says after the lockdown, all her neighbors, have, they know each other. The community builds when you have a difficult situation. So India has faced many problems and we are a resilient people. If you can get people to understand, you know, how we have to learn to live with this problem. You have to learn to connect and learn to sing songs, learn to be happy, but make sure you don't infect other people. We can sing Jai Ho together. Right? Just wear a mask or do it online. <laughs> Let me also end with this other thing. See, it is easy for Indians to say we are gung-ho when everything is going our way. Right? The real test of character for a person comes when how do you deal with the difficult times? And I can give you an analogy. 
I've been through a difficult time myself. And I've built up this analogy to say, sometimes I feel like I'm on a train. Right? I know there are a lot of people in the compartment. I don't know many of them. They, many of them know exactly where we're going. I'm not that sure I know exactly where we're going. Then I also know there are many other trains going all over the place, crisscrossing the countryside. And there are people in the same predicament. And sometimes these train journeys can be fantastic because the train will go through beautiful forests. I remember going from uh, Chennai to Delhi and we used to cross the Sambal, uh, the ravines where uh, Pulan Devi used to live. And on one part of the journey could be in daylight. I would just love looking at these really desolate ravines and imagining what Pulan Devi was like. I can also remember taking a train trip to Uti and that railway will climb and you can actually get off the train and walk alongside and pick flowers. And very often you'll find this train with crest arise and you'll see the horizon, you'll see the sea, you can smell adventure. Fascinating. But many trains, your knees will suddenly go down and there'll be a tunnel. And you look out through the window, some tunnels are short, you can see light. Not a problem. Then there are some tunnels and I can draw parallels, your life. You will go through a tunnel. And you cannot see light because it's a long tunnel or there's a curve in the tunnel and the light is cut off. But you and I know from our life experience, there is no tunnel in the world which does not come to an end. There is none. So if you know that in advance, that this epidemic will pass, this time will pass, what can you do? You have a choice how you react during the epidemic. You can panic. You can bitch, you can, you know, make life miserable for everybody else. Or you can say, hey, there are people around us, that guy looks a little lovely, let's talk to him. Or you can, you know, these guys are looking gloomy, let me take out my guitar and sing a song for you. Or you can all get together and say, let's see if we can write beautiful murals on the walls of this compartment. Not deface it, but beautify it. Share your food. And in effect, you can choose to be the pickle in somebody else's tire sack. <laughs> That's your choice. The metaphorical pickle in this metaphorical uh, tire saddle. You know, yeah. So it's our choice, but you have to know one thing. You have to know how to protect yourself. You have to know that you're all in this together because if that does, person doesn't wear a mask, I'm in trouble. Everybody's in trouble. So how do we encourage everybody else to take the sensible methods? You don't need drugs, vaccines. This is a natural condition, it will go. But it's getting us to change the way we think of ourselves, our lives, our societies, and hopefully we'll emerge from this, having learned the lessons of this pandemic, so that we can deal with future pandemics. Right. And my friend is doing well now. He's connected <laughs> with them. He's much happier. Right. So the solution in this pickle is to be the pickle for someone else's tire saddle. Yeah, yes. and if you're and if you're a not, if you're a knowledgeable pickle, it helps. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Rohan, we yes. have uh, ten minutes more. Yeah, Do you want section. to go through yeah. these questions? Um, sure. From the Let's... internet, or do you want to wrap up? Because I think we've covered a lot. Right. Right. Um, let me just take a look at the other ones. Okay, uh, maybe wrap up with uh, this, uh, the one uh, Aniruddha George sent in. 
let's do that yeah um okay there are actually a ton of other questions but maybe we can um write down the answers separately uh, i think this sure, is that, a nice meaty one to get into do you want to ask that rohan sure uh so this is anirudha george and he asks both the aids crisis and the present covid-19 crisis are being used uh for political and social ends for example with covid this means using law and order measures like section 144 instead of community outreach misinformation and disinformation by government approved sources instead of reliable and valid data and scapegoating minorities so uh the muslims and the poor in india much like for gay people during the uh, during uh, aids how can researchers and public health individuals try to combat these trends well um, yeah that's what i was talking about earlier in the sense that you know the reactions have been very similar in each other including some of the questions you i saw in that list was about the who who is being scapegoated right the same thing happened even in the hiv crisis in fact the who actually had to give up a whole they changed the director general and finally un aids was created because un is the body that sits over the right. right so the scapegoating will go on it all stopped when you realize there are solutions see haitians people from haiti were considered to be the ones spreading them in fact there was a term called 4h during right. hiv homosexuals hemophiliacs uh haitians and uh, one more h they're social group they get normal so that's the reaction when you do not know what uh, what to do about it once it all settles down and you figure out that you can start seeing countries starting to be able to emerge from the lockdown you're going to get again hot spots but you have a concerted response you've learned that if you see social distancing will start working over the next few weeks you start finding that the rate drops but we are no way near that it will peak for a while and then it will come down you're seeing that happen in italy you're seeing that happen in spain after that tough time the light is starting to emerge at the end of the tunnel that does not mean there won't be other tunnels but you learnt what to do before you come to that tunnel this is going to go on all of this will stop escapeporting political trends will stop when we realize we are in this thing right the other important element of a social vaccine that india has to develop it has to regain trust just before this epidemic pandemic hit us in india what were we doing we were fighting with each other communal stuff right everybody needs to have a guarantee that the agenda of the government is not to continue that surreptitiously throughout this crisis that trust has to come then we'll all be in you know in good shape second thing is the government wants me to download an app arogya seetu which is supposed to help me and them identify if i have crossed paths with somebody else whose cell phone signal or whatever identifies himself as infected because he's been tested that they know who i am and they can offer me tests so first i need to know whether it is safe for me for the government to know all this because what will happen to me and what will happen to all this information they collect after this crisis unless we have trust in the government we won't work together that's a fantastic idea but we are not going to get the majority of people particularly in the well you know in the ostracized communities trusting them so the social vaccine concept is the government and the people work together there has to be trust 
I, I like um, the, uh, the fact that you've explained how this is a serious situation and it's not something we can ignore, but there's also hope. There are things we can do and we can band together. Yeah, yeah. there is hope. Anyone in a tunnel, if they draw to their previous experience of what they've learned from others, there is no tunnel that doesn't come to an end. Right. They're drawing from that experience. This epidemic will stop. It'll become less serious and less of a problem, provided we know what we can do in our power and to help our communities protect themselves. Whoever it is, your neighbor has the same risk as you. You take the same measures as your neighbor. You find, so my wife, for example, we bought masks. My wife gave it to a local shop who provides produce for us saying, listen, please wear this. Right, now there's one person who consistently refuses to wear it. So what our job should have been is to actually find out from them, why are you not? What is the issue? What are the risks of not wearing? That's how we do it. I've seen videos of cops in some states in this country, instead of lati charging, people are not wearing masks. He's having a discussion. I've seen uh, videos of cops when a lady is walking with a shopping bag, not wearing a mask, he reaches into his bag and gives her a mask and says, please wear this. That's how we facilitate this message. Right. Yes, I think, uh, I think we have a lot to think over. Um, just a quick uh, shout out to Prabhu Mani for all the questions he had sent in. We've answered uh, many of them. And like we said, we'll answer more in the show notes. Um, yeah, I think most we... of the questions that he asked were answered in the discussion. So yes. that's one reason why I didn't want to really bring them up yes. again. Thanks, Prabhu. Uh, Thank before you, Prabhu. we sign off, uh, Appa, uh, how can people find out more about you? Perhaps collaborate with you, ask you questions, things like that. Well, uh, you can always come and visit me, but not now. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you can provide them my email ID, they can email me. Sure. Right. And once we get into this question of uh, genuineness of what they want to do, I'd be happy to work with people. Right. Yeah. If you message. if you pass the Pratap test, he will uh, share his phone number with. I'll you. give you my I'll give you my WhatsApp number and we can. <laughs> Uh, and I promise I will not send you any forwards. Right. <laughs> unless, they're, unless they're interesting ones. Yes. Uh, Sushil, what about you? How can they find you? Yeah, so I, uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Sushil underscore C, and Instagram, Sushil02, that's S-U-S-H-E-E-L. And Rohan, what about you? Yeah, I have started uh, uh, becoming more active on Instagram, where I, my handle is uh, Rohan Tries Thinking where I share some of my thoughts and reflections on stuff that's happening now, including COVID. Uh, you can always also engage with me on Facebook. And if you, uh, I'm a freelance writer. So if you want to collaborate with me, uh, you can find me on rohantarian.com. Uh, Sliding Doors podcast. Sushil and I have, uh, this is the fifth episode we're recording. If you want to see a podcast as it evolves from two bumbling people getting their act together, uh, please do check, check us out. Sushil, where can they find us? So um, we're on Instagram and uh, Twitter and Facebook. Links are in the show notes. So Pratap Tarian has agreed to come on this podcast, which means that he has given us the official thumbs up. Thanks so much, Appa, for giving us your time. Thank you so Take much. Care. Enjoy talking to you. Yeah, Sushil and I were saying that we must have you back maybe in a couple of weeks 
to have an update on what's been going on sure. and the latest uh, trends. Uh, that would be fun. That so, thank you all. Thank you. Thank Akka. you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Um, thank you, Dr. Pratap, also for joining us and uh, sharing your insight into this uh, situation and um, the historical context. Um, so we have a lot more to discuss. We had more questions. Unfortunately, we've gone way past our um, scheduled time frame. And I think what makes sense is to extend this into um, another discussion. Uh, what do you think, Rohan? Yeah, that so we'll, makes we'll sense. come back maybe in a week or two and we'll revisit this um, with more questions, uh, maybe a little more update, uh, a few more updates. And um, thank you everybody for joining us. Uh, meanwhile, if you have any questions that you would like to ask Dr. Tarian, please send us, send us either a voice recording, there's a link in the description, or you can connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. We have uh, accounts over there. Um, and where, what else, Rohan? Anything else? The, the other thing is, over the next week or so, we're going to be sending out, sharing rather, short clips of this uh, interview. So if you spot them on Facebook or wherever, uh, and you have questions about the clip or generally questions about COVID, just drop a comment there for us and we'll try and cover those questions. We'll in monitor the, uh, those and yeah. Yeah. Also, please remember to subscribe to the podcast. <laughs> That's something we always Click forget button. to ask. Click the button. Click, Click the, the button. button. <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll see you soon. A special COVID namaste to, to you all. Bye-bye. <laughs> Take care.